Welcome once again to Radio In Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community here on WCOMLP Chapel Hill and Carborough. This is Ernie Hood. I am a freelance science writer, and each week here on the program, we bring you cutting-edge information about what's going on in science here in the Triangle area, one of the world's leading hubs of scientific research, development, and innovation. You can email us at radioinvivo at earthlink.net. And you can access a full archive of our hundreds of past programs over the past 12 years at radioinvivo.net. The Burroughs Welcome Fund is a Golden Voices underwriter here on WCOM and Radio in Vivo. The Burroughs Welcome Fund supports excellence in science education across North Carolina. The fund believes that providing students with an engaging and interactive curriculum helps to spark curiosity for careers in science, mathematics, and technology. You can learn about education grant opportunities for North Carolina schools and teachers at www.bwfund.org. Radio In Vivo is underwritten by Chapel Hill Eye Care, located at 235 South Elliott Road in Chapel Hill. Chapel Hill Eye Care provides comprehensive eye care to people of all ages. Healthy eyes for a lifetime. Chapel Hill Eye Care, 919-968-4774. Radio In Vivo is also underwritten by the Triangle Center for Evolutionary Medicine, or TRICEM, a nonprofit center exploring the intersection of evolutionary science and medicine. TRICEM is jointly operated by Duke University, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, North Carolina State University, and North Carolina Central University. TRICEM is an incubator that promotes innovative developments in the theory and practice of evolutionary medicine by fostering cross-disciplinary collaborations among triangle-based scholars, physicians, public health workers, and more. Radio In Vivo is supported by NC State University's Genetic Engineering and Society, or GES Center. The GES Center is shaping the futures of biotechnology by integrating scientific knowledge and public values. Now live streaming weekly colloquia. For more information, visit go.ncsu.edu GES or follow the center on Twitter at at GES Center NCSU. Finally, Radio In Vivo is underwritten by Gene Centric Therapeutics Incorporated of Research Triangle Park. Gene Centrics is a pioneering the advanced classification of cancers for more effective drug development and more accurate diagnosis and treatment of patients through its core technology, the Cancer Subtype Platform. More information is available at genecentric.com. Radio on Vivo and WCOM thank this terrific group of underwriters for their support. Today on Radio in Vivo, we feature a scientist I have been wanting to meet and chat with for years for a long overdue visit. Dr. Randy Jertle probably wouldn't say it, say it himself, but I am free to say that he is probably the father of the burgeoning biomedical field known as epigenetics. I'm going to get him to define epigenetics for us, but the shorthand version is that epigenetics are the changes that occur in the packaging surrounding our DNA, 
that controls operations like gene expression without affecting the DNA sequence itself. He'll tell us a lot more about that. Uh, Randy has been a pioneer in epigenetics for decades now, and his work remains on the cutting edge of this extremely important field. We will learn all about epigenetics, gene imprinting, and the fetal origin of adult disease in our conversation. Randy Jurdle is currently a professor of epigenetics at North Carolina State University in the Department of Biological Sciences. He's also a senior scientist at the McArdle Laboratory for Cancer Research at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Previously, he was a longtime faculty member at Duke University. Randy received his B.S. in nuclear engineering in 1970 and his Ph.D. in radiation biology in 1976, both at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Randy Jurdle, welcome to Radio In Vivo. Thank you very much for having me here. Randy, I'm always interested in the journey that has been undertaken by my guests to arrive at where, where they are today. And yours is certainly interesting, and I'm guessing a little circuitous, judging from your undergraduate major in nuclear engineering and your Ph.D. specialty in radiation biology, and then your progression into the then-obscure field called epigenetics. Uh, it sounds like you ended up right where you belonged. Yeah, for me, it makes sense. But for people looking at it, it, it makes probably not as much sense. Uh, it was, a, I use Yogi Berra's quote, you know, when, I, when you come to a Y in a road, take it. I took a few of them. <laughs> and it led, me, it led me to the field of epigenetics in, in the early 1990s. But I got, as you said, I got my Ph.D. and my undergraduate degree in nuclear engineering. And then ultimately the person gave a course in, in I was doing shielding problems, how much radiation, I mean, how much lead you should put around a reactor core so that you wouldn't irradiate yourself. And they wanted to make the point that radiation at high doses was really very harmful. For example, I think the amount of radiation required to kill a person if you got whole dose radiation was 500 rads using old terminology. Mm -hmm. That wouldn't raise a cup of coffee two degrees centigrade. So it's not the energy. It's not the energy that's causing the problem. I found out the, the reason was it was causing damage to the DNA. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I didn't even know what DNA was. And I was so excited about it because it really, to me, it reminded me of a computer. And I very much enjoyed computer science and programming. And now getting back into the field of epigenetics, in a way, I've got back to what I left in engineering, but in a biological system. So it took me uh, a long time, but I got back home. There you go. Excellent. Well, Randy, this is a, a pretty technical uh, material for our listeners. Uh, and although I always strive to be true to the science, I'd like to break down some of what we'll be talking about just so that everyone understands. First of all, how do you define epigenetics? I use an analogy, and a computer analogy. Uh, epigenetics just simply means above the genetics. I mean, that's the simplest definition. It's like epicenter is above the center. Mm -hmm. But I think of it this way. If you, like, if you think of the hardware of your computer being comparable to the DNA, the physical DNA within our cell, then the epigenome is comparable to the software that tells the computer when, where, and how to work. So in effect, our cells are programmable computers. They're not hardwired totally to do things. There's programming that also has to be done. 
So this is why you can have an embryonic stem cell, for example, which is totally undifferentiated. And yet in our body, we have 260 or so cell types doing individual uh, important uh, things to keep us alive. So how did you get from a single cell into 260 different differentiated cell types? This is through epigenetic programming. And each one of those cells is running a different epigenetic program. It's like you would have 260 Mac computers. I like Macs. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and sitting out in a row and every one of them doing something different. One's running Word and one's running uh, you know, a browser, etc. And that's the same thing in our cells. So when you're exposed to the environment, not only is your DNA being potentially altered through mutations and stuff, but you have the potential of literally altering those programs that should be running in those cells. And both of these situations can give rise to disease problems and susceptibilities. In the past, and not that far in the past, the focus was completely on the DNA part, the mutational part. But that's changing dramatically now as people realize that there is this whole other part of a cell uh, running properly, which is the epigenetic programming, that also plays a part in diseases, and that's what's being studied now. I see. Very good. Well, um are the changes in the in the DNA packaging that you describe are they heritable? Uh, do they pass down in subsequent generations, just like DNA itself? <clears throat> well, they have these these marks have to be transmitted from cell during cell division. So within your body, you don't normally have a liver cell going back to an embryonic stem cell, sure. or going in, for example, to a skin cell. But there is some plasticity even there because liver cells can be forced to turn back into pancreatic cells, for example. So it's not totally – the DNA is rigid. The programs have a plasticity to them, and therefore it allows them to respond to the environment. But the downside of that is you now are potentially more susceptible to disease problems because of alterations in the epigenome than you actually might be because of mutations in the genome. But the other question you ask is, is this also potentially passed through uh, the gametes, the egg and the sperm, so that you have transgenerational inheritance of some of these epigenetic marks. They're not completely necessarily erased. And there's good evidence now in lower animal models that indeed this is the case. But as you get up higher into mammalian systems, the evidence isn't as strikingly there, but there's quite good evidence that this also happens to some degree also in mammalian systems and potentially even including humans. Sure. What are, what are the implications of that uh, transgenerational element? The implications are actually phenomenal because if you think about it, a mutation in the DNA is usually counteracted when through marriage uh, when you have an egg and a sperm combining to give the, the forming new embryo, it's usually canceled out. So you don't see a phenotype. A characteristic is not passed. It's, genetically, it's there, but you don't see it. Mm -hmm. But if you pass a complete epigenetic program that is out of whack in one generation, and I mean that for behavioral disorders, diseases, whatever you want, it's a generic out of whack, right? right. <laughs> out of whack in this generation, and that is not erased. In the next generation, you will inherit intact the out of whack situation again, mm -hmm. meaning that there's a very high probability that that individual will have the same 
problems or advantages. It can be advantageous too that you saw in the previous generation. So it's, it's transmission, if it indeed it's not erased, is more penetrant than most mutations are. Well, that, that's... You understand? Absolutely. It's hugely yeah. important. Um, it, it sounds like so many of the, the diseases and disorders that we attribute to DNA uh, inheritance may actually be more attributable to they, epigenetics. They could be. Okay. And this is what has... This, I mean, I use this, they could be, because in science, you know, until this is demonstrated really very clearly, yeah. uh, you're on thin ice. But these are the kinds of studies and, and types of things that have to be done now because once we did, which we'll get into our study in 2003, which basically showed, at least in animal models again, that the fetal origins of adult disease susceptibility were due to epigenetic changes, we now know where to look. Mm -hmm. We didn't know where to look before that, but we now know. And that gives us a lot of power because we have the sequencing capacity and the tools now that we didn't have 10 and 20 years ago. Right. So these issues that seem like they're insurmountable, I mean, they're going to fall like dominoes very rapidly as we push harder on this and find, realize that we don't only have problems or advantages. I keep, it can, it can be advantageous too. Sure. Uh, not only because of mutations, but also because of alterations in the epigenome itself. I see. Well, Randy, sometimes I like to read quotes to my guests of things that they've said or written in the past. Oh, no. <laughs> it's benign, not to worry. Okay. Uh, and get them to elaborate upon or update uh, their thinking. And I have one for you that you wrote 10 years ago in 2008. And that quote is, to fully understand the etiology of the most devastating diseases that plague humans, the full complexity of the human epigenome will ultimately need to be characterized. Uh, as I said, you wrote that. Wow, that's pretty, that's pretty good. That was profound. <laughs> that's why I, I wrote I it I didn't down. even remember that, but that was good. <laughs> uh, after 10 years since making that statement, how far have we progressed toward that understanding uh, that you uh, called for? Well, being in science all my life, uh, I realized that the scientific community is, uh, moves slowly. Uh, it's not as fast as you would sometimes like it to be. But I, I think now that there is, it's pretty obvious, just even because you're interviewing me, uh, that that the field of epigenetics has grown tremendously. So the importance of it to not only the scientific community, but also obvi really obviously, even more obviously maybe, to the general public is, is, uh, is improved greatly since I, I wrote that. Mm -hmm. And then I said, on top of that are the tools, and because in effect, studying the epigenome is, is a massive, massive sequencing problem. That's the way we look at the epigenome is through sequencing of the DNA and looking for the marks that are on, the, on either the histones or on the, on the DNA itself. Mm -hmm. Those technologies and techniques are, have improved unbelievably so that you can run things through so much faster and so much cheaper than you could before. So the possibility of determining a complete, you know, epigenome or methylome or whatever you want to call this in, in humans, individuals, is, is here. We can do this now. And it's now being done. So a lot of information is coming out 
But a lot more, is, I think, is going to be coming out in the next five to ten years. Um, and I think by the end of five to ten more years, we're going to have a pretty darn good idea of what's, what genes are important, where the regulatory elements are, how nutrition, exercise, all these environmental good things, these are good things, mm-hmm. and bad things are affecting these uh, programmable elements that alter the epigenome, not only in the individual, but potentially in the offspring. I see. Well, has has the field moved uh, quickly enough, in your opinion? Well, has it, never, there been... it never runs quickly enough, right. for as far <laughs> as I'm concerned, but it's... It is moving faster. Okay. And some of it is a, is a resistance, as I said, because when you look at life through I call genomic eye spectacles, it's sometimes harder to think that there is the programmable part of this, this, progr- this uh, computer, basically, not just the hardware. That's important. And so it's not just uh, that we have these technologies. You have to actually change the minds of individuals, and that includes also some of the minds of scientists. Well, that, that anticipates my, my next question, really, was which has there been adequate uh, support for, for this field? Well, that's a, I didn't, I didn't, audience, I didn't write these questions. <laughs> the, there's never adequate support as far as I'm concerned, but mm-hmm. there's, uh, there's good support. I mean, it, and it's moving more towards the field of epigenetics as people realize that it's a more and more important area to study. Mm-hmm. And that's, in a way, even though I'm being somewhat facetious before, but that's the way it really probably should be. I mean, you don't, you don't want to be putting money into a place that is all hype and there's, no, there's nothing worthwhile in it. Yeah. Uh, I don't think Which that... We've it, seen a few examples of that over the years. Yeah, definitely. And yeah. so, you know, it's good to be critical and ask questions and push the people that are involved in epigenetic research to, to demonstrate that this really is important. And I think uh, the people in the field have been up to the task. I mean, there, there, more and more information is coming out about how important it really is. Well, I saw a presentation that you gave several years ago, actually, uh, where you said that epigenetics was the hottest thing in science, with the uh, number of publications just exploding ex- exponentially. Is that still the case today? Is the field still exploding? It's exploding, but I haven't gone. I need to do this because if I write another review, I'll probably have to revisit this. Uh, it was at that time. Uh, we had gone through, the, if you look at um, ep- exponential growth on linear scales, it looks like nothing is happening. Then you get that little twist, and then it goes vertical. Yeah. So when I was talking about that, it was probably around 2007 or so. Mm-hmm. We, were in the vert- we were in a vertical phase. We'd come out of that little bending area, and uh, people could see that it was moving rapidly. But, you know, nothing continues to go exponentially forever. At some point, it starts bending back over, and it forms a sort of a S-shape type curve. My guess is that we haven't gotten to the point where it's slowing down yet, but I have not gone back into PubMed is where you need to do and look at the number of papers that have been published in epigenetics as a function of time. But I will have to do that. My guess is we're still in the exponential phase of of the growth yet. I see. Uh, What, uh, Randy, are are the most daunting research gaps at this point? Uh, How much is left to be done until we gain the, the really full understanding of the epigenome that you have called for? That's a great, it's really a great question. Um, 
we need to know the targets. And there's two, you know, there's a lot of genes that are regulated. In fact, you know, we wouldn't have differentiated cells if there weren't a lot of genes that are regulated epigenetically. But there are ones that are, that, that are playing more important roles in diseases that, and there's two major classes of them. I call them epigenetically labile genes. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't other genes that are regulated epigenetically, so I don't want people calling in and saying, well, there's this or that. But there are two <laughs> classes that are really important in the developmental processes that give rise to these developmental disorders of which neurological disorders, diabetes, um, even cancer could be potentially a developmental problem that starts much earlier than people think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those are called metastable epialleles, one class, and the agouti mouse locus is, is a, an example of that, and we'll get into that later yes, on. Yes, we will. And the other class of genes, which is important, if maybe even more important from my personal standpoint at least, are the genes that are genomically imprinted. And I think we're going to get into that mm-hmm. also. Indeed. We need to not only know those genes, but we more almost importantly need to know the regulatory elements that are epigenetically controlled. So you need to know two pieces of information. You need to know the regulatory elements and then the genes that they control. Once we know that, we can screen for the first time. We can screen our own whole genome and determine, does this diet versus this diet do something? Does exposure to this supposed toxicant alter it? And if so, in what dose response do you see? Mm -hmm. Because this is another thing which we might not get into, but there's this whole phenomenon of hormesis, whereas in low doses of toxic compounds are not only not causing problems, but actually resulting in positive adaptive responses. These things are really, really important to look at and and investigate, but we need to know the genes and their regulatory elements in the human, really, because that's what we're interested in. I know it's we're interested in other animals too, but ultimately we're really most interested in us and our diseases. We need to we need to find these, and that's that is what needs to be done. I think we're that what's that's what needs to be done now, right now, mm-hmm. because without that. The field of epigenetics really can't move forward. It's stuck. Yeah. You can't get the kinds of things that scientists cause and affect things. You can't do this well because you don't know what you're looking for and where. Right, sure. We well, know some of them, but not a lot yet. Okay. You, you uh, just introduced an element, which was the next element I kind of wanted to pursue and get your thoughts about. Uh, and that is uh, the impact of the environment. Right. Um, you uh, anticipated the development of the er- emerging field now known as environmental epigenomics. Uh, where does that line of research stand at this point? Yeah, we not only anticipated, but we actually named it. <laughs> <laughs> named it. In- invented it. It was the it was the title of the of of 2005 symposium that we had at at uh, Washington Duke Inn and. Um, yeah. yeah. So well, everybody in the triangle, environmental ep- epigenomics was invented right here. In, it, it, in well, at least the word. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the, <laughs> not the word, but the word's a term. Uh, and the question again was, where is that field at? Yes. 
there are a lot of people working in, in, in this field of research now, but as I said, the problem that all of them run into is you don't necessarily know what are the genes that are most important in, form, in formation of diabetes, uh, obesity, even, even epigenetic controlled regions that are involved in cancer formation, um, neurological disorders. These things are not really, really well known yet. And until we find these genes and their regulatory elements, we are, as I said, the field to a degree is sort of stuck. Mm -hmm. And so our group, which is uh, Catherine Hoyo and David Scar, and I work with them now over at NC State when I retired from Duke, one thing we're looking at, which is one part of this whole problem, is to determine the genes that are genomically imprinted within our within humans and their regulatory elements, which we have termed now another term called another ohm, the imprint ohm. Ah, okay. And that we're in the process of actually doing right now through sequencing. There are other people, including Rob Waterland, which was a postdoc in my lab that did the work where we, the Goody Mouse work, the original work, is now also working and doing some great work looking at and trying to identify these genes in humans that are metastable. Metastable epial is, and indeed they exist. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sure he will, once he finds these, will uh, determine their regulatory elements, et cetera, and determine again how these are potentially involved in uh, fetal uh, adult disease susceptibilities after exposure, literally uh, at the earliest stages of development. Right. It, it seems like there's more and more uh, coming out in the literature about the, the fetal origins of, of adult disease. Uh, and that that so much is tied of our our adult lives are tied to what happened in the womb. Yeah, I mean, and maybe we should define this for the audience, uh, Please be, do. because this the fetal origin of, of adult disease susceptibility, in a way, started with people around the time when David Barker was an epidemiologist after World War II, and he was an epidemiologist, and <clears throat> he. There was a, the, it was called the Dutch famine, uh, winter, hunger, winter, or whatever. I mean, it was a huge, the, the Nazis put an embargo against Holland, part of Holland that they still controlled at, at 19, I think 1944, I'm thinking it's right at the end of the war. Mm -hmm. And it was a particularly severe winter. So these people that were in this area had, were eating food and getting calories around seven to 800 calories per day to put that in perspective an adult should male anyway should be getting in female a little bit less 22 to 2500 calories a day so this is severe starvation yeah. thousands tens of thousands of people starved but yet still there were people that were women that were pregnant and children that were born and they found David Barker when looking at these children then many years later 20 30 years later found that if they were in utero during this Dutch winter famine, that they had an increased incidence of, of cardiovascular disease, and other people showed obesity, and then another other group showed schizophrenia was mm -hmm. increased by a factor of two to three. And so, but the problem with the, this whole field for many, many years is that people couldn't, a lot of people just couldn't or didn't believe it. Yeah. <laughs> and you say, why? Because there was no known mechanism at that time by which there could be a memory of something that occurred, and they found that the most critical time was the first trimester. So this is literally at a time when maybe many women don't even know they're pregnant. 
And that's the most critical time. Why? Because all the programs are laid down at that point that give rise to the, all of the body parts that we have. Mm-hmm. So the environmental impact is really dramatic there. So anything that's altered in a negative or, as I said, sometimes positive way will be in all of your cells for the rest of your life. But what was the memory system? And up until 2003, it was not known. Then we published the paper on the agouti mice that showed, at least in that model system, it's epigenetic modifications that's important, and the whole field blossomed. And that's how the field of environmental epigenomics got started. That ushered in that whole era. Before 2005, there were no papers. I think that maybe I shouldn't say no, but not very many. Uh, I think maybe no papers that use the word epigenetics. After 2005, I don't think there's hardly a paper that doesn't use it as, as the mechanism by which this occurs. So once you have a mechanism now, people start believing it because now you can understand that the memory system were these little chemical marks that were inappropriately placed very early in development. And once they're placed, as you said, during cell division, they're reproduced faithfully throughout your whole life. So every one of us is on slightly different sort of disease trajectories, dependent upon the environment we were exposed to when we were at the earliest stages of our life. It's amazing. So it's, it's really a question of nature and nurture at that very There's early stage. There's an almost, I, I can't, it's hard to dissect same the two from each other. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're sort of opposite sides of the same coin almost. I see. Very good. Well, you are listening to Radio In Vivo, and my guest today is Dr. Randy Jertle from North Carolina State University, and we are discussing epigenetics. Randy, now that we've pretty well established uh, epigenetics, uh, let's move on to another major and related topic, uh, one that you have studied and published on extensively, and that is gene imprinting. Uh, you've already given us a thumbnail definition, uh, but just to re- refresh everybody's memory, you've defined imprinting in the past as imprinted genes have one parental allele silenced epigenetically, and they play critical roles in human development. Can you describe those critical roles for us? There's another little part to that definition that's left very, it out. very, very <laughs> important. It's parent of origin dependent. Uh, right. It's even mm-hmm. more it's even crazier than what you have. So it's not only that only one copy of the gene works, mm-hmm. but it's always the same copy. In other words, it's the one inherited from your mother or from your father, depending upon the gene. Sure. So in other words, IGF-2 in our bodies, if it's expressed, it's always expressed usually, or there's some exceptions, but expressed from the father's copy, the one you inherited from your dad. Mm-hmm. So if there was a, a mutation, for example, that screwed this thing up that, you, on your, that was inherited through your mom, you wouldn't see it. Whereas if there was a mutation that occurred on your father's copy, you would see it immediately because you have no backup. Sure. It's, it's an astonishing thing. And this is how we actually got into the field of epigenetics. Because way back, this is as I said, maybe I shouldn't be called just the father now of epigenetics. I, I'm probably more like the grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay, too. <laughs> but in, ni- in the early 90s, we identified the IGF-2 receptor, which is the insulin-like growth factor 2 receptor, mm-hmm. as being a tumor suppressor gene in, in liver and a variety of other tumors. Right at the same time, Denise Barlow, who unfortunately died last year, she was an astonishing scientist. And did 
literally was responsible for me getting into the field of epigenetics because in the early 90s, she published that the IGF-2 receptor was genomically imprinted, and that was the first gene identified in mammalian systems to be imprinted. I looked at this and I said, what the heck? I said it a little bit more dramatically than that. <laughs> what the heck is this? I mean, I'd never heard of anything like this because it was so bizarre. Yeah. And... Um, I remember saying to myself after I read her paper, and basically she showed that this gene, when inherited now in mice, that the only copy functional was the one that was inherited from the mom. The father's copy is always turned off. And we had just shown that this is a tumor, a potent tumor suppressor gene. So I'm thinking to myself, this is incredible. Mother Nature, on purpose, is turning off one copy of a gene that's involved in cancer formation. Why? Yeah. Why would this happen? It, it was so strange. And I told the people in my laboratory, but I had no idea how we were going to pull this off. But this was a why. I mean, definitely a change. I said, we're moving our whole field, our whole laboratory, into the field of epigenetics because this is really something that is incredibly important. So then the question is, when you don't know anything about a field and you've never been trained in the area, how do you get into it? We got into it through evolution. And we demonstrated then about three or four years later when the phenomena of genomic imprinting evolved, and we showed very clearly that it evolved at least at two loci, the IGF-2 and IGF-2R, about 150 million years ago in a common ancestor that gave rise to what we call therian mammals, which are the mammals that give rise to live birth and have placentation. Mm -hmm. And the way we did this is that monotremes, which are mammals but lay eggs, don't have imprinted genes, nor do birds, nor do salamanders, nor do any species that's been looked at below therian mammals, which are marsupials and the true eutherian mammals of which we're a member of. Okay. To me, even though I love our Goody Mouse experiments, that was the most exciting kind of study that I ever did because we were looking at how we got here evolutionarily. Sure. It, it was astounding to me. And now we're trying to find these genes and identify them in humans because these genes are involved particularly in brain development and are involved in the formation of neurodevelopment, neurobehavioral disorders. Thus, we're looking for the human imprintome. Absolutely. Uh, well, Randy, what, what might be the evolutionary advantage associated with imprinting? which, as you just said, is seen in all young-bearing mammals. Right. Um, no no, no this egg, doesn't, this egg doesn't show up in the platypus. <laughs> nope. No egg-laying animals okay. have them. Uh, I understand it's, it's a, you've characterized it as a conflict hypothesis. I didn't do this. It was done <clears throat> uh, by David Haig, who's at Harvard, and, but the theory goes that the reason imprinted genes occurred is that it was because of a genetic battle between males and females to control the amount of nutrition that the offspring extracts from the mother, mm -hmm. with the male trying to maximize that extraction and the female trying to dampen it down. And the reason why, that, therefore, that imprinted genes only 
uh, occur in animals with placentas is because the battleground became the placenta itself. Uh, the father cannot determine how much nutrition, for example, that the mother puts in the yolk of an egg. Right. But he can sure use genetics to manipulate the amount of nutrition that the offspring extracts from the mother once you have a placenta. That's theory, but it, it holds up quite well. And it makes some interesting predictions. It predicts, for example, that genes that are progrowth, which if you think about them from a cancer standpoint would be called oncogenes, mm -hmm. would be expressed only from the father's copy. Father wants embryo to grow big. Mother doesn't want it to grow big because ultimately if it got too big, she would die in childbirth. You know, so there's, it's a yin and yang. It's a balancing act. So the genes then that would be predicted to be maternally expressed, which, by the way, the very first gene identified to be imprinted was maternally expressed, and it is a tumor suppressor gene. It's a breaking gene. Mm -hmm. Why? Because IGF-2R doesn't signal for IGF-2. It's the degradation pathway for IGF-2. It's the break. It sucks it up and degrades it. So it's balanced out. Whether this is true or not, um, probably will never really be able to be determined. It's, uh, but it fits, the information that's there fits reasonably well with this, with this theory. But there's extension of this, which is called David um, Christopher Badcock. It was called the imprinted brain. So he theorized, it's basically an extension of David Haig's theory of imprinting, that what happens when, you, when the imprinted genes are out of out of whack again, in yeah. other words, too much paternal expression or too much maternal expression, what goes on? And he may, again, there's a b book that he's written on if people are interested in it. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. It's a very interesting read, but it's quite technical, but it, it's, it's uh, amazing, actually. So he makes the predictions then, and this can't be tested until we know the complete repertoire of genes that are imprinted in, in humans or mice or something so we can test this particularly in humans, it makes the prediction that if you have overexpression of paternally expressed genes, which are pro-growth, it would give rise to the neurological disorder we call autism. And the antithesis of this would be overexpression of break genes in the brain, which would tend to make the brain somewhat smaller, whereas the other one would tend to make the brain somewhat larger, that it would give rise to the neurological disorder we call schizophrenia. So you have a normal distribution going from autism to schizophrenia with all neurological disorders fitting on this curve to a great degree depending upon the repertoire of these maternally and paternally expressed imprinted genes that are active in our brains, in each one of us, when we were basically developing at the earliest stages of development. Now, we get back to the fetal origins of adult disease susceptibility. What happens when you have a lack of food? You get schizophrenia, two to threefold increase in schizophrenia. What do we have in the countries now? An overabundance of food. It would predict autism. Sure, sure. Whether this is correct or not, I don't know, and we're not going to know until we know the human imprintome and can actually look at this. But it's an incredibly interesting, it's really interesting, yeah. and it's really important. But we can't move off the dime 
until we know the repertoire of genes that are imprinted and the regions that are involved in their regulation. Well, how many, uh, how many of these genes uh, have we identified so far? I understand that there's, there's a lot to be discovered yet. Probably a lot more, but we don't know for sure. I mean, when I retired from Duke, we had identified 20% of the known imprinted genes. At that time, I would say, I'm guessing now, maybe about 50 or so were known in humans. Mm -hmm. In mice, because more people work in mice, the number of genes that, and they might even have more imprinted genes, I don't know, but there were many more that were, they were up in the 100, around 100, 120 genes that were identified as being imprinted in mice. Um, my guess, again, is that we're talking hundreds. We're not probably even talking thousands, hundreds of genes that okay. are regulated this way. Mm -hmm. And uh, so in a way, it's kind of like looking at it for a needle in a haystack. But there are mechanisms by which we can do this, and that's what we're, we're doing now. And you, couldn't, you could not pull this off without having the modern sequencing uh, techniques that we have now. It would be impossible. I see. So that, that's the mechanism that's used. That's the way you, you find them because mm -hmm. these regulatory elements also have to be differentially methylated because the methylated part is the one that's usually shut down. So when you find that sort of that motif or that little signal, mm -hmm. you say, hmm, this looks interesting. You line all these things up, and then okay. you have to go and improve that they're involved in regulation. But that's the way you pull them out. They should have one allele not methylated and the other methylated, which means one allele is functional and the other is not. Mm -hmm. If you look deeper, you should be able to show that that methylated always comes from the mother or father because they have to be parent of origin dependent. That's the way you start narrowing it down to get these regulatory elements. A lot of work, yeah. but it's doable. Well, um, with the imprinted genes, Randy, um, I was just fascinated to read the lengthy list of diseases, some of which you, you've already alluded to, uh, when they occur early in development. Um, what about when these genes are altered later, later in life? I understand that that's when we start thinking about cancer. Yeah. Or have I oversimplified? <coughs> no, you haven't. So... The most vulnerable time in our, in, our, in our developmental period for altering the epigenome is going to be very early in development because that's when all the marks are laid down to give rise to differentiated cell types. So, I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand that, right? Sure. In a way, the most resistant period of time for most people is throughout most of their life. I mean, it, they're faithfully reproduced. There's a lot of mechanisms in place to make sure not only is the DNA faithfully replicated, but also that the programs are faithfully replicated during cell division. So where are, there's two other places that people become vulnerable again in, in, in when they're more closer to adults. The first is during uh, puberty. For example, when the sex organs like mammary glands and stuff are growing, uh, there you have another proliferation. So every things are coming from small numbers of cells and enlarging. So if there's an epigenetic change very early, you could have whole ductal trees, for example, that might have tumor suppressor genes turned off epigenetically or oncogenes inappropriately overexpressed epigenetically, not, not mutationally. Mm -hmm. So if you went in and looked for the mutations, you'd find nothing. These are in the regulatory elements. That's one place. 
The second, and it can be even the prostate, and kind of, the same kind of thing for males. So in females, I mean, in uh, the other places, what your question is, in, during our life, unfortunately, is as you age. You know, to be able to maintain, because these are not, they're not there all the time. I mean, your cells grow, you have to, they have to be faithfully reproduced. Well, if they're not faithfully reproduced, because the systems aren't quite working as well as they used to, or maybe you're not eating as well as you used to, or maybe exercise is important in maintaining your epigenome, and you're not exercising as much as you used to, your ability to do this is re reproduce these cells faithfully from one generation to the next goes awry. And your telomeres are shortening. And they're shortening. And you add all that together, mm -hmm. and cancer is a disease primarily of the aged. I see. Well, you know, in— Not in just for mutations, but potentially also for because of epigenetic changes. Absolutely. Well, uh— Randy, we, we touched on it, but I'd like to take you back now while we still have a little bit of time left uh, to uh, some of your seminal earlier work, uh, specifically your discovery of so-called metastable epialleles in your studies using agouti mice. Tell us about that. We were involved in imprint gene research. And we wanted to know, actually, whether the environment could alter these imprint regulatory elements. And Rob Waterland came into the laboratory right at that time. In fact, that's what he wanted to investigate. And we talked about it and came to the conclusion that knowing science and scientists, that even if we found a 10, 15 percent change in methylation of these regulatory elements, we'd be spending the rest of our life trying to explain why this was biologically relevant. Mm -hmm. nah, I've been in science a while. Sure. <laughs> uh, so this model system... Overcoming the so what factor. Exactly. <laughs> and they just cr crush you with it. Yeah. So we said we need to find, we have to have a model system that can go from, that involves epigenetic form, ch changes that you can go all the way from environmental exposures to an absolute phenotype through epigenetic modifications. And that, we didn't, we did not discover this model, we used this model. And that was the, uh, <clears throat> the agouti mouse model, which goes from brown to yellow, basically, or yellow to brown, whichever way you want to think about it. And so you have a beautiful coat color uh, that you can see, which is completely dependent upon the degree of methylation of a little retrovirus that jumped in up, upstream of this agouti gene. So normally the agouti gene is regulated developmentally. You have a black hair shaft right at the end of development, a yellow little agouti gene is turned on, blap, it puts a little yellow at the base of the brown, the black hair shaft, and we see it as brown or agouti. With this model system, <clears throat> what happened is that there's a, trans, an, a virus that jumped in upstream, and it set up an alternative start site for regulating the gene inappropriately. And so if that viral element is not turned off, and turning off is done through methylation, so epigenetic, sure. then what happens is that it's open, the agouti gene is inappropriately expressed throughout the body, throughout the life, for the, until it's dead. And what this does now is it changes the animal's coat color to yellow because it's just expressed continuously. Mm -hmm. And in the brain, there's a place in our brain called the satiation center, which tells you whether you're hungry or not. 
this protein, this agouti protein, amazingly, I mean, it binds to a receptor and it blocks that, that response. So these animals never know that they're full. Indeed. <laughs> so they literally eat themselves into obesity. And just like in humans, then they get diabetes and cancer at increased incidence. It's an automatic. If you see yellow in these animals, they will get obese and they get, ca- they get cancer and diabetes. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, and comparing them to, <clears throat> to the brown normal uh, they're healthy their whole life but they're 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 all genetically identical they're they're exactly they're inbred so they're genetically identical yeah. so this is a beautiful system now to determine any whether any environmental exposure can alter phenotype which is a characteristics that we've talked about coat color cancer and diabetes obesity through epigenetic modifications it's just beautiful total proof of principle oh, total no mm-hmm. arguments here. Yeah. And this is what you want. E.O. E. Wilson wrote in a book once that for every science question, maybe only every important science question, I don't know, there is a model system that's ideal for it. And for determining the importance of epigenetic modifications in disease susceptibility, the perfect model is this agouti mouse, period. It's beautiful. So that's what we did. Rob then looked at nutrition and showed clearly for the first time that he could change the phenotype of the animals literally by altering the mother's diet and supplementing it with methyl donors, which are the little marks that are put down on the DNA. Mm-hmm. And in that, that, that's the end, that, that was the beginning of the environmental epigenomics era. And then we looked at... That must have been a total eureka moment. It, well, it was, it, was a, it was, but it was also a... A sigh of relief because we didn't really actually have um, funding for it. <laughs> so we were taking my the money that I'd gotten from unrestricted money from from uh, companies and also from from donors mm-hmm. and use that money then for this the, these experiments. So we depleted to a degree our our backup reserves to do this. <laughs> and uh, so if it. If we didn't find something positive, uh, it would have been difficult for us to have, uh, uh, not impossible, but dif- more difficult for us to continue on with our imprinting studies. Indeed. Well, at, at the time, you said uh, the fields of toxicology and nutrition have been merged. Uh, yes. I thought that was a pretty profound They were conclusion. merged by another paper that was written by Dana, Bol- done, work was done by Dana Dolanoy because she looked in, with bisphenol A and showed bisphenol A at the level that we were using, which was sort of comparable to what you'd have in our, you know, levels that we would have in humans, uh, that it caused more yellow animals, which is not good. This is a bad situation. Mm-hmm. And she was able to completely negate the negative effect of bisphenol A by supplementing the mother's diet with methyl donors. So now you have nutrition functioning as a medicine that counteracts the negative effects of an environmental toxicant. The two fields are basically have been merged. They might not like it, but they are merged. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, that also, that whole concept of of food as medicine uh, brings up all kinds of possibilities for prevention as well, right? Definitely. And again, I want to get into the last study we did at Duke, which is is 
I wanted, I, we've always were looking at chemical agents with the Agouti mouse model, and she showed a lot, I mean, people can read, there's a lot of published work on that, that we've done, and others too. But I was always interested, because of my background, I was interested in whether physical agents could also alter the epigenome. So we used low doses of ionizing radiation. Mm-hmm. Well, I came through the radiation biology program in the early 70s. And the dose risk assessment model was the linear no threshold model, which means simply for the people out there that are listening that there is no dose of radiation that's safe. So we predicted then that there would be a dose response increase in an increase in yellow animals as we increase the low doses, going through the levels from what you would get with an X-ray to the CT scan and a little bit above. Uh, I think we went up to just about 10 centigrade, which would be 10 rads or 10 rems in the old old systems. I think old rather than new. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so we were going along, and we were starting the studies, and Autumn Bernal did these studies. And I said, Autumn, one day I said, and I was getting no feedback. And I said, Autumn, how's this study going? She said, and this is a direct quote. She said, it's freaky. Now, you don't want to have... <laughs> You don't want to have a student tell you that your study is freaky or your <laughs> study is freaky. And I said, what's freaky? She said, at the doses that we're at, we started at one dose, which is a lot, dose you would get with a CT scan. She said, we see absolutely no yellow animals. They're all brown or heavily mottled. What this means is that low dose, that low dose of radiation induced a positive, not negative, a positive adaptive response mm-hmm. in that animal, in those animals, and she later showed that was again due to epigenetic modifications. So it appears that the phenomena that I always thought was not correct, which is called hormesis, indeed is correct, does exist, and that cells have evolved systems that involve the formation of reactive oxygen species, which we showed too. Because when we blocked the reactive oxygen species, we negated and eliminated this hormetic effect. So antioxidants in this study actually caused the negative thing, and radiation induced a positive effect. So it looks like, at least from this, that we know now know that hormesis is correct and that it's due to epigenetic modifications. <clears throat> And we've got to look at and reassess whether this linear no-threshold model is the best model now for determining our risk to low doses of radiation because, in effect, it's based on completely, almost completely high doses of radiation. Sure. And there's funny little things going on at low doses that involve not the genome but involve the reprogramming of the epigenome. Right, right. Beautiful. Well, this this is certainly a very current topic right now. It with is. The <laughs> EPA trying to tell us that uh, there's no problem with low doses of radiation. I but thought now of we, you when I read the it, headline, and hmm, I can't wait to hear what Randy has to say about that. The thing is, though, you've got to know where is that. Where does it start becoming a problem? Yeah. In effect, you can almost you could almost think of it as a threshold. Even if you don't like the thought of it being advantageous, you could say it's not of a problem, and then it becomes a problem. But where that breakpoint occurs will have to be determined. But this is what we need to do. And the other thing is, as people go into space with this hormetic effects, can we maximize it? Can we make it longer? Can we enable 
astronauts who are in space to actually be protected to some degree from being exposed to radiation, not exposed, but from being damaged by radiation um, by studying the actual phenomena of hormesis. It's important. Very important. Absolutely. They're not going to be underneath the magnet, electromagnetic field that we're under. They're out there by themselves, and we've got to start looking at this and seeing if we can use it in a positive way. Yeah, absolutely. And get beyond this risk assessment stuff. Sure, sure. Uh, another study that you have uh, described was potentially looking at the uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki survivors and their offspring. Uh, apparently about 6,000 people who were in utero at the time of the bombs. Has that study actually happened yet? Or, and, and if so, what was found? To my knowledge, it has not been looked at. I see. Again, what would you look at? I would look at these regulatory elements involved in imprint regulation. And the advantage of those is that those imprints are established so early that they're present throughout the whole body. So even if you only have cells from the skin or from the blood, you should be able to see what went on very, very early in that individual uh, when some of these individuals were exposed to low doses at that, even low doses, otherwise they wouldn't have survived, yeah. but low doses of ionizing radiation when they were in utero. We need, we need resources. You ask about resources. Some of these, these resources have to be put into these areas and look at these old data sets and old samples in a completely new light. Not just the light that shines on the genome, but now let's shine the light on the epigenome and see what's going on over there because that is also incredibly important. Absolutely. Well, uh, Randy, we are actually out of time. Uh, it's been a real honor to have you on Radio In Vivo, and we will certainly be following your ongoing research on epigenetics and gene imprinting with great interest. Thanks for sharing your thoughts today on Radio In Vivo. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. We've got some great guests lined up in the coming weeks here on Radio In Vivo. You can check the website, radioinvivo.net, or our Facebook site for the lineup of upcoming shows. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time.